This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Hello, Generation Anthropocene listeners. Michael Osborne here. Before we get to today's episode, I just want to say that if you want to support the show, the way to do that is by going to patreon.com slash genanthro. To make this show possible, we rely on listener support. That means you. Help out if you can. And if you can't, that's cool, too. I get it. Okay, on to the show. 4.6 billion. The Earth Forms. Cambrian. 542 million. Complex life explodes. Permian Triassic. 251 million. 90% of species die. Cretaceous tertiary. 65 million. Meteor kills the dinosaurs. 55 million. Primates appear. 2.3 million. Pleistocene. 200,000. Humans. 20,000. Agricultural. 250. Industrial revolution. Great acceleration. The Anthropocene. Welcome to Generation Anthropocene. My name is Michael Osborne. And what's your name? Duncan Osborne. And who are you? I'm a weirdo. Now, I know that, but uh, how, how are you and I related? We're both boys. <laughs> no, I know, but uh, how are we related? What am I to you? My dad? Yeah, that's it. I got one thing to ask you real quick. Do you remember what we were talking about in the car? Um, we were talking about, um, reduce, reuse, recycle, and butts. Yeah, that's right. But remember I also said that there's a conversation I want to have with you that, uh, I want to get ready for? Yeah. Do you remember what that conversation's about? No. Uh, let me ask you this. Have you ever learned about climate in school? No. So you don't know what that is? I don't know. Yeah. Um... So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to talk into the microphone for another minute here, and then you and I are going to have a conversation about climate. Okay? Okay. Okay. So yeah, today's the day I picked to talk to my eight-year-old son about climate change. And as you can imagine, I've been dreading that conversation for a long time. Um, I'm not alone here. I mean, there's a lot of hard conversations to have with your kids. Last week, we had to talk to my son about what happened in Uvalde. And, you know, sometimes you find yourself trying to explain the politics of the world. But with this one, you know, I'm so close to it, climate, that um, my heart's heavy. And I'm scared to do it. And I don't know how to do it. This is one of the realities of parenting. Um, how do you describe this to a child? How do you present it to them in a way that is honest and truthful, but doesn't terrify them. 
Hope is so important in these conversations. And I know, I know everybody has to go through this, but yeah, I'm agonizing over it because at the end of the day, the Anthropocene climate change is a big, heavy story and figuring out how to tell it. I mean, honestly, that's been the whole mission of this podcast, of all of Generation Anthropocene. What story are we telling in it? Are we doing it right? And that brings me to today's guest. My name is Elizabeth Colbert. I'm a staff writer at The New Yorker and the author, most recently, of Under a White Sky, The Nature of the Future. If you don't know who Elizabeth Colbert is, she is, in my mind, one of the premier science and environmental journalists living today. She's written several books, uh, including The Sixth Extinction, which won the Pulitzer Prize. She's been around a while, and she's, you know, kind of a badass. I've been wanting to have her on the podcast for a while. And quick programming note here, I recorded this conversation with Elizabeth Colbert with one of my producers, Sophie Borstein. So you'll hear both of us in this conversation. But, you know, just to say a little bit more about Elizabeth Colbert, she first crossed my radar back in like the mid-2000s, 2005, 2006, something like that. There was an article I came across called The Climate of Man. So before recording this interview with Elizabeth Colbert, I went back and reread that article. And to my surprise, she actually references the Anthropocene in that article, like 2005. So I actually started the conversation by asking her, were you the first person to introduce the Anthropocene to, you know, a mass audience? Well, you know, Paul Crutzen himself wrote a piece. It was called, I think, the geology of man or something like that in nature. It was sort of a little, small, but also popularizing piece. It was not a technical piece. It ran in 2004. And that, I think, really catapulted the phrase. It really started showing up. But I certainly was jumping off of of the piece Hero, which is still very, very short. It's one page. It really summarizes everything. Yeah. I'm curious as to how you became, you know, you don't have to tell the big, long story, but how, <laughs> when did you start reporting on climate? Because I, I see you as somebody who is one of the preeminent environmental science reporters, certainly in America. You've been at this a while, and you have done some really, really impressive work. How did you get into this to begin with? Well, I was really a political reporter, and I was working at The Times. Then I went to The New Yorker in 1999 to write a political column, actually. And for a bunch of reasons, it seemed like that was sort of antiquated. You know, it was just the beginning of the news cycle becoming driven by the internet. So it was just hard to do a political column that was going to be weeks after the actual events. So I was sort of looking around thinking what, what stories are going to be true this week, next week, the week after... And I honestly didn't know much about climate change, but I was fortunate enough to go to Greenland in 2001 for the first time. And that really was eye-opening to say the least. I wrote a piece off of that trip and that really set me off on this. I sort of abandoned politics for, for environmental reporting. Yeah. And what, what year was that exactly, that transition? Well, I went to Greenland for the first time in 2001, the spring of 2001, and I filed that piece. I have a very clear recollection of it on September 10th, 2001. Oh. 
then yeah yeah, September 11th that changed everything we all uh got thrown into September 11th coverage including me um spent kind of a year on the aftermath of September 11th and then embarked on a sort of series of stories that became the climate of man that Mike just alluded to that reporting was done in like 2004 or so and then that came out in 2005 got it so you know in six mass extinction uh, there's a quite a bit of I don't know real estate in the book devoted to the Anthropocene I, I think I want to keep talking about that and your sort of experience with that as a framing device for global environmental change and, and in a major way that's most of what I think we want to talk to you about today is how we understand that term why it's useful maybe even what some of its pitfalls are and even some of the the, the narratives that surround it but I'm curious to sort of hear your journey with it you said you mentioned Paul Kreutzen's 2004 piece, which I'd forgotten about, the Nature article. Tell me a little bit about the evolution of your experience using the Anthropocene as a term that is helpful or not helpful. Well, I I think it's a very helpful term. It covers a lot of territory. There's a lot of, there's a lot packed into it. How's that? And I actually also wrote a piece in maybe 2010 or something like that um, for National Geographic on this concept and on what it means and what it signifies and for which I spoke to Paul Crutzen, who actually just died a year or two ago. Saw that, um, and he said to me at that time, it was very memorable. I meant the term to be a warning to the world. And I think it is a very useful word because modern geology, you know, which was, which was born sort of 200 years ago or so has one of the great breakthroughs which divided it as it were from the the geology if you like of the of of the bible and of christianity was that things occur very slowly these massive slow forces nothing happens quickly in geology you know that was sort of the mantra and that became codified as over the years, so much so that any evidence of rapid change in the geological record was rejected as unscientific, even when it was very compelling evidence. And that really has influenced generations of people, whether they studied geology or not, this notion that, well, the earth is really big, there's a limit to what we as one species can do to it. And I think that certainly, you know, post-World War II, when we, when we realized we could destroy the world with nuclear weapons, that we needed to shift that narrative. But it, it was very difficult, and it's still, it's still difficult, and people still have this sense, I think, of the world, that mountain over there, you know, I'm not going to, you know, that's going to be here. And that's true. That mountain is probably going to be here, although we can destroy even whole mountains if we put our minds to it. But I think, I think we need a reckoning with our impacts on the world, which, as Paul Crutzen points out in that 2004 article, now vie with the great forces of nature, which are, you know, volcanism and the movement of tectonic plates and to give you know one example of that which i'm sure you're all familiar with you know volcanism was pretty much the only source of extra co2 added co2 in the atmosphere for a gazillion years and right. now humanity every year emits 
at least 100 times as much CO2 as volcanoes do. So we have taken over the carbon cycle, which is is huge, has really never happened before, or when it has, when there's been some weird geological event in the past where, you know, massive volcanic activity, we, we now associate those with, with crises in the history of life. You know, ditto for the nitrogen cycle. We now put out as much, you know, synthetic fertilizer as all terrestrial ecosystems combined. So we've taken over the nitrogen cycle. Now, those are the two, you know, sort of big biogeochemical cycles on planet Earth. That's pretty big, and we need to be cognizant of that if we're going to, and this is a big if, you know, rationally try to deal with our own impacts. Yeah. So I, the reason I bring it up um, is because I, too, have an infatuation with the term. I've been running this podcast, you know, 10 or so years. My background is in geology as well. And I've been attracted to it for a couple reasons. One is, as you kind of alluded to in a way, it's it's not just climate change that helps make the case that humanity has become a, a kind of geologic force, or at least it's a conversation worth having. The other piece, which you alluded to, is the experience of time, that, that there is something to me really important and powerful about a geologic perspective when it comes to global environmental change today, that it's not that Earth is warming or that a species are being lost. It's the speed with which it's happening. And the more you have a kind of uh, reverence for the geologic timetable and have even like tried to wrap your mind around just how much time is in Earth history, the, the deeper that message sinks in which is, I think, a hard thing to educate on and a hard thing to communicate. And, and the Anthropocene idea, I think, does it fairly eloquently. You know, it's, it's, it's big. It's big. There's a lot packed into that idea, right? So I don't know. Did I, was, I, was I hearing you right? And part of the reason that this term has been attractive to you in your career as a journalist? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that it's very succinct. Now, it's only succinct, honestly, you know, if you sort of have in your mind a picture of, you know, the geological timetable, how many people really know that we technically live in the Holocene, how many people know what the Holocene is, what it refers to. So I don't want to exaggerate it. But even if you don't, I suppose, you have some vague sense of geological time and ice ages. And so I do think that it brings it home in a way. And And once again, I think the proof is in the in the uptake, as it were, the term has, is just everywhere now. And something that's useful, I think that proves its utility in a way. Yeah. I kind of took away the same things that Mike did and seeing the Anthropocene as a description of time and also like self-awareness, I think, as a population. So going off that, I was wondering how the use of that term and like the rise of its popularity kind of changed your reporting or writing style? Well, you know, I, I, I am not a geologist. And I think that seeing the world shifting your perspective, we are such now driven creatures. And I think that's increasingly true, you know, short attention spans. I, I do think that's unfortunately the case. And I think that broadening, you know, your perspective, the world starts to look, and I'm sure you both feel this way, uh, very different. I live in Western Massachusetts. I'm looking out 
at the tallest mountain in Massachusetts, which isn't very tall, admittedly, but, you know, is a product of a mountain building event that occurred half a billion years ago. So that rock is half a billion years old, at least. And that connects you in a weird way to these vast expanses of time when you start to become aware of the, the spaces that you're in. And this is also true, you know, when you start looking at the flora and fauna around, you know, I, I now realize that, you know, the, where I was standing was under ice, you know, as recently as 10,000 years ago, that completely shaped this area. And you can see traces of it everywhere once you start looking. So it it's something that makes you start looking at the world differently. And I think, you know, is that useful? It's, it's interesting, I'll say mm-hmm. that. And it's useful if, it starts to inform the way we act and respond to our own power. Power. That's a very good word. Yeah. No, I, I, I mean, you know, my experience with this is it's a, ephemeral, right? I, we did an interview with Marsha Bjornrud, if you know I'm, her. I was just going to, you know, I just met Marsha for the first time like two weeks ago, and her book, Timefulness, really talks about this, and I... Yeah. It nails uh, it, right? She's yeah, awesome. I really re- recommend it. Yeah, yeah. We, I, I, I it, it's a good episode of Generation Anthropocene, and I do think it is like there is something to be said in a way of, you know, sometimes it becomes clear in these like fleeting moments when you zoom in on the minutia when you're with. I'm sure that you've had this sort of experience where you're looking at the itty bitty sediments, the <laughs> little thing, and you're like, oh, it's just this tiny little marker, and then you're like for a second, your imagination explodes like, oh my God, there's so much time. Right. And then, and then it's gone. But I, but I think, I think it's important. I mean, I think part, and I think it's relevant to climate especially, but the Anthropocene broadly in terms of getting your head around the scale of what we're talking about and creating a kind of imaginative capacity to, to take to heart, you know, where we are today, because I think, and there's a tension around it too. There's this in in one sense, very scientifically valid case for humans have affected the surface of the earth forevermore in a way that is likely to register in the geologic record. At the same time, it feels like, and this is one of the criticisms, obviously, filled with hubris, right? That that, that somehow it elevates humanity's role or something or, or, or impact. I, I've always balked at that criticism because to me, it sort of is like, we're not... Power and control are two different things, and I, I don't for a minute pretend that we're in control, but it is a statement about power. I don't know. I mean, have you done these kind of uh, mental gymnastics with this term in your head? I mean, you've been thinking about this for a while. I think when it gets into the sort of social sciences of it all, uh, I'll just be frank and say to me, that's not really as interesting. And there are people who say, well, it shouldn't be the Anthropocene, it should be the Capitalocene, you know. And as yeah. you say, there are people who say, well, this is um, just another sign of, of, as you say, humanity's self-involvement. I I don't think those criticisms are particularly valid, I'll be frank. And I, you know, I don't think the the term is the term Anthropocene is, is very capacious. As I mentioned before, Paul Carson himself said, you know, I meant it to be a warning. I didn't mean it to be a celebration. <laughs> and right, I don't think right. anybody takes it as a celebration of human impacts. It's, you know, and not to criticize academics. I'm married to an academic, but where <laughs> something took off, got a tremendous amount of currency, and there was then currency in criticizing it because that's just how debate works. But I have never read, I will say, I have never read a criticism of the term Anthropocene that I found very compelling. 
And what I hear in that is as it relates to our physical understanding of the world, regardless of how we interpret it as a political statement, in terms of its validation as a physical representation of of measurable impacts on planet Earth, ranging from climate disruptions in the nitrogen cycle, biodiversity loss, ocean acidification, and so forth. Is that is that a fair? Yeah, thing? exactly. And I I also think once again, I'm not a stratigrapher, but yeah. the arguments that this will be discernible in the fossil record. I also commend Jan's book, which is called The Earth After Us. And I think that the evidence is extremely compelling. I mean, our impacts are already, will be discernible. Once again, I don't know who's who or what is going to be around to discern them, but for many, many millions of years, absolutely, it rises to the level. Now, once again, not to get too bogged down, not to get too much in the weeds here, but what's been proposed for the Anthropocene in a sort of technical stratigraphic sense is an epoch, which is a very trivial amount of time as far as geologists are concerned. So the Holocene is an epoch. It's only the last 11,700 years since the end of the last glacial cycle. It's not a very long time for geologists. There are people who believe that this is way more than an epoch. This will stand out you know, as a period. This will stand out as a huge division in geological time as we continue to drive more and more species extinct, as we continue to ratchet up our carbon emissions, as we continue to ratchet up our output of nitrogen, these are going to not be trivial signs in Earth history. These are going to be huge signs in Earth's history. It's a little hilarious to me that we may be like having this debate on behalf of future aliens, right? It's not clear who the stratigraphers of the, of the deep future are going to be. Right, right. And I don't think, honestly we really care. I mean, once again, you're getting into a kind of situation where the traditions of the discipline are at stake. And there are traditionalists who say, you know, you don't name an epoch when you're in it. And, you know, another argument that's made, although I think maybe this one is fading, is, you, you know, you ain't seen nothing yet. You declare the Anthropocene now, having begun now, you know, 100 years from here now, 200 years from now, 1,000 years from now, I don't really know what timescale people are thinking about. But, you know, it's just going to become more and more evident. So we shouldn't be worrying about it now. Now, that's kind of also another weird argument, because, you know, we're here now. Um, but uh, geologists do, as this, to get back to Marsh's point about, you know, timefulness, geologists do try to think in the longest possible timeframes. So the present is not necessarily, I mean, this is one of the ultimate problems that, that you have. The idea that time is, the present is not a particularly important moment. Present is just a moment like any other moment in the last, you know, four and a half billion years of earth history. Well, it just turns out weirdly and not coincidentally, (laughs) you know, that that's not true. So in going off that and thinking of like, I guess, the usefulness of the term Anthropocene and um, kind of sitting with the gravity of these changes. In preparing for this interview, Mike and I were talking about kind of the more apocalyptic side of things and apocalyptic narratives that can arise in journalism when thinking about climate change. So I was just wondering, I guess, how you see those narratives or how you feel about them in general. Well, you know, I'm kind of old school journalist. And my view is, if something can be 
defended, as it were, as factual, as truthful, then let the chips fall where they may. So if the future looks potentially apocalyptic, and I unfortunately think that that's true. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. we're sitting here, you know, today, you know, there's a terrible heat wave going on in India and Pakistan. There are terrible fires in New Mexico. You know, these are all clearly climate change related. And by the time this airs, there will be more of these events to add to the list. So, and we're just getting going, you know, so I don't think that imagining apocalypse is misplaced. Now you can say, well, does that motivate people to act? Does that motivate them to do the right thing? I think those are very important and interesting social science questions, and they're for someone else to solve and honestly for someone else to deal with. My job as a journalist is not to tell people what will motivate them to act. It's to tell them the truth. Now, this gets into you know a conversation about journalism <laughs> that yeah. we could have, but that's the way I see things. I, I, I think that's actually very much where we'd like to go, the, the conversation around journalism. I, I wrestle with this too. I have been running this podcast for 10 years. That question came up as soon as we launched, the, the appropriateness of an apocalyptic narrative. And in some ways, the conversation is a little bit tiresome because you almost feel like, look, is it my job to create a sense of hope or is it my job, you know, and that's the the, the job of, of a journalist is to tell a story based on factual information and with integrity. But I have been thinking a lot about that in terms of, is there a responsibility for the emotions that are created around a story? And I, I'm certain you've given this some thought. In interviews I've heard you give, you're very clear on, you know, what your responsibility, what your job is, you know, what your role is as a, as a storyteller and as a journalist. But in terms of the emotional weight of what this means, you know, how do you understand that responsibility? Well, I think it is... Um... Is that a fair question? Yeah, it's a fair question. It's a it's a painful question, honestly, and it's one, you know, I I was trained as a journalist if you want to use that word. I mean, you know, the question of whether journalists ever really get trained is a good one, but I I learned on the job. I mean, I was I was hired as a very young person by the New York Times. That was, you know, sort of you absorb the ethos of the Times. And the ethos of the Times was definitely that's not our job. If you start to, you know, there was no such thing really in those days. Once again, I'm old enough to remember you, you know, you put the newspaper out every day, how people responded to it. How are you going to know that? You know, um, now, now I could see what got tweeted. I could see what got clicked. I have a lot more information on how people are, are reacting, at least in terms of um, consuming it, though I don't know what's going on in their, you know, hearts and minds. I still don't really know that. And, these questions are so complicated and profound because we now realize we can't even rely on what people tell us their responses are. You know, those are not necessarily accurate. So how would I know how my audience is reacting? But let's leave aside that those sort of epistemic questions that, you know, we may never be able to answer and just say, well, let's say you knew that what you were doing while truthful was you know, unmotivating, demotivating to people to to do anything. I think that would put journalists in a very difficult, in a difficult position. But I think one of the 
you know, issues that I sort of, and maybe this is self-protective, honestly, is, you know, look, people have tried everything. They've tried solution journalism. They've tried, you know, scaring people. They've tried, here's what gives me hope. You know, everything has been tried and still we do nothing. You know, so I kind of don't blame journalists for this problem. No, well, yes and no. Okay. So I I think we need to decouple some things in here. I I mean, I I think that the metric is not what do people do and what is the action taken or not taken? I mean, you know, I, I think you know how people feel. I think you get the question a lot. Isn't it all doom and gloom? And how do we deal with that? I mean, that's that, that seems to me kind of self-evident that there is an emotional reaction that's very logical. And again, rooted in truth. Let's not lose that. Right. Um, and I, that was the question. It's not necessarily what do people do or not do. Yeah. It's, it, it's about the emotion that's created. I'll tell you one thing that's motivating this, just to add some yeah. to the yeah. question. I, Sophie and I had a conversation before this interview about how there's this phenomenon now of a lot of young people choosing not to have children. Yeah. And mm-hmm. that that's a very telling data point. Now, we also had a conversation about, gosh, do we bring this up in this conversation? Because we are at a very touchy moment, obviously, when it comes to access to reproductive rights and, and that sort of thing in, in the U.S. We ultimately decided that really the, the question is if you let's assume a world where we do have full <laughs> uh, access to rights. When, when young people say, I'm not even going to have kids because this world isn't living in, something very big and deep has sunk in. And it, there's a the part of me that wants to say, gosh, are we missing something here? Are we missing something about the message that's been communicated? And I guess I just want to emphasize again, and I, ho- I hope this comes across, I, I wrestle with this tremendously and have been for 10 years because there, there, there is no Elizabeth Colbert story I've ever read that I didn't think was true and was like well-reported and full of integrity and jives with the science as I've come to understand it and so forth. So there is a part of me that says, you know, as storytellers and as journalists, we do have a responsibility for how this thing is shaped and how it's received. But it's that how it's received question that I think I'm trying to get at. That's, that's a lot to respond to, but. Well, I, I do think, you know, there's a, there's a famous libel case, um, involving the New York times, Sullivan versus the New York times. It's still the libel standard until the Supreme court guts it. The truth is an absolute defense. If it's true, it's not libel. And if it's true, honestly, if, if the, if your response to the truth is, I don't think I should have children. That's what we need to talk about, not whether journalists should shield you from the truth. I think it's a very reasonable response to what's going on, mediated, I don't know how, mediated perhaps by looking out, you know, if you're in California, looking out of the window and seeing a blood red sky, you know, if your response to that is, I don't think I should bring more people into this, into a very, very uncertain future. I, I think that's a very valid response, and I, I honestly don't feel feel guilty about that. I'm sorry that the world is the way it is. I myself have children. I myself also wrestled with this issue, and now we're talking, you know, back in the '90s, when already there was way enough information to know that the the future was going to be very uncertain and perhaps a lot worse than the future that than the than my own childhood and young adulthood. And now all of those, you know, chickens are coming home to roost. And once again, they, you ain't seen nothing yet, you know? So I think that 
we need to be dealing with the reality of the situation, not the question of whether, you know, I should, and, and once again, this sounds defensive, but journalism in general should be changing its message. That is such a side issue to what is actually going on. Right. Yeah. So going back to kind of the responsibility of journalists in climate change, yesterday, Mike and I were talking about that topic and I kind of made an analogy and said that, you know, if someone's speaking to a therapist, like on an individual level, the therapist kind of holds on to the problem and kind of takes, in a sense, like responsibility for someone's, you know, issues and perspectives. And I really see similarity there between journalists where journalists kind of have are the voice of people's issues in a way. And people really listen to journalists and respond to journalists, I think, more than we think. Mm, so I wish I thought you were right. Sophie, <laughs> okay, maybe not. Uh, but, I mean, I do. So uh, um, I guess, like, where do you see your voice in all of this? And where do you see, your, like, where do you think your responsibility lies mm. in speaking almost for everyone? Well, I think my responsibility, you know, I think it does lie in conveying a truth. How's that? I'm not going to say the truth because there are multiple, multiple truths. Now, you could say, how do you decide what truth to share since we could slice and dice this many different ways? And Mm. uh, the decisions that go into journalism are for better or worse, like, how can I tell a story? How can I tell a story that people will read? So, but on some level, my responsibility to my reader, I feel is, or to my employer, which is the New Yorker, how can I tell a story that people will actually want to read? Now, when you're telling them, when you're imparting to them doom and gloom, that's a challenge. I don't want to say it's not like a walk in the park. (laughs) And so I am always looking for stories that tell you something interesting about the world. They don't just convey to you, oh my God, you know, abandon hope. They tell you something interesting. They maybe take you to an interesting place. They introduce you to interesting people. And it's not a very, um, you know, it's not a rigorously worked out ethics. I will be frank. It's, it's much more ad hoc because I am dependent upon what's happening, you know? So I have to work with what the world gives me and I have to try to, find and negotiate that space where reality and storytelling sort of sort of meet how's that yeah yeah that kind of answered my next question which was like how do you balance kind of reporting on these doom and gloom issues with also keeping a constructive perspective well i i think that you know you can call this a cop out if you want, and that's that's fine. I won't be insulted at all. I mean, I do rely on people, so I could go out and write a, write a, write a profile. I wrote a profile, for example, going into Paris. I wrote a, uh, a profile of, of of Christiana Figueres, whom I consider, you know, a sort of a friend now. I, I really mm. admire her. She's a, a tremendous person. Now, Christiana has one, you know, perspective on things. She's sort of a constitutional optimist and sort of a professional optimist. And I can report on that. That's not my perspective. That's not me, but that's her. Mm-hmm. And then I can report, you know, and I did a profile of James Hansen. So, you know, journalism is not, a, it's not being an ethicist. It's not being a 
political philosopher. It's getting out there and telling stories. So I have over the years, you know, and I've been at this a long time, offered many different perspectives. They're not my perspective. Um, There are other people. So I can hide behind other people a lot. You know, I, I, I guess I just want to say to go back to kind of where we are, that I think we're coming at you with some ultimately unanswerable questions, <laughs> right? And, yeah, and I've, I've been thinking about, like, I'm not, I'm not sure that there is uh, a clean resolution or a take home message to how we do deal with the reality of a, where we are with our environmental crisis, a crisis well captured by the term Anthropocene. I've been thinking a lot about, you know, how it, how it feels because I've been, you know, the human psyche, you know, never underestimate the power of denial, right? Yesterday, I was sitting with my wife on our back porch, and uh, and we we're. she said, oh, you know, it's going to be 100 degrees next Monday. And it's mid-May. It's not unheard of. I don't know if it's going to break a record or not. Probably will. It's looking like a long, hot, god-awful summer. And then I look over at my children. They're five and eight years old, and they're playing in the yard, and my heart sinks. And I think about, um, and I've been thinking about not necessarily the truth of the story, but my relationship to the story. And so when I when I push on you to say, do we have a responsibility? And I say we very deliberately there. Do we have a responsibility as uh, storytellers of the environmental crisis underway to do something about the emotional impact of that. It it is with an eye towards, there's also a mental health crisis. There's a sort of collective neuroses happening out there. I I don't want to sugarcoat anything. The truth matters and it needs to be impressed upon people. And you are incredibly talented at finding characters who can do exactly that. But there is a part of me that feels like the story is still sort of incomplete, that we're not doing enough to say there is still beauty and humanity and vivaciousness possible in a world that even as it's unfolding with the slow environmental crisis. I really worry how much uh, we're tethering our psychologies to, to this, I think, most important story unfolding on planet Earth today. Again, no clean answers here. Um, but if you want to react to that, that's, that's where I'm coming from. Well, I, look, I, I have kids. Um, they're older than your kids, but, you know, and they're still young people who I hope have many decades ahead of them. And it's very painful, obviously. And, you know, that gets back to the, you know, the responsibility for having brought them into this world. These are very, very difficult and painful issues. But I don't believe, although I do obviously worry about the mental health of, you know, an entire generation. And I do understand what an unbelievable, you know, unprecedented burden we're putting on them. But honestly, I don't think that the problem with our society is we're spending too much time, you know, as a whole, spending too much time thinking about these issues. Because if we were, we would damn well be doing some things a lot differently. Well, um, so wait a sec. I think that there's a <laughs> subset of the population that is fixated. And I think part of it, I mean, this is a media criticism point, I think, is how fragmented our storytelling apparatus are in an age of social media and a kind of larger crisis in journalism. And I don't think it's on the journalists to figure that out. I think that this is, you know, a, a question of democracy in a lot of ways and institutional trust. I mean, this is going to bleed into all <laughs> kinds right. of things. But so I hear you. But I do think that for the people, and I, Jovi, I think it's safe to put 
you in this camp who mm. are uh, coming into the world, taking this seriously. Um, and, you know, I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I don't want to tell them a different story, but I want to help somehow. And I don't, and, and it's not, and I'm not talking about decarbonization. we got to do that no matter what. It's more, how do you, how do you handle a story this big? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, that, yes. that feels like I, I just don't want to leave them screwed that way with this sort of like sense of dread. And, you know, I don't know. I mean, again, this conversation could be t- come tiresome if you talk about like responsibility of doom and gloom. But um, I, no, I, 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 I think that's, into a yeah. you know, I think that's a very, um, you know, I think it's an important point And it's a really interesting point. I don't think it's a point. You know, journalists are not solving that problem. Yeah. Um, you yeah. know, the, the lack of sort of, you know, inspirational leadership, let's say, the collapse of our political system, you know. Capitalism. I mean. Yeah. I mean, someone <laughs> maybe will arise, you know, may, maybe yeah. someone will, you know, emerge from this dreadful situation to become an inspirational figure that that was that was sort of Greta, I would say. But Greta mm-hmm. is not like, you know go out and absorb the beauty of the world. She is, is, you know, get up and do something about this. Yeah, enough. But, you know, but, but there, you know, there is a need for that and a hunger for that. Absolutely. But I don't think, you know, once again, and you can accuse, you can call this a cop out and I will accept that. I don't, that's not the role for journalists. Journalists have never been asked or, or capable of, because our job, at least you know, prior to the polarization of the media and mm-hmm. social media and all that, was to handle dispassionately. To go to you know, to go to a speech by Greta, to go to a speech by Mitch McConnell, and just you know, once again, we're not going to get bogged down in the notion of whether there is objectivity, but just right. just report on that. Just tell people what other people are saying and doing, and that was never going to be how to live. And the fact that, you know, journalists now are like, the fact that social media and a lot of people are sort of, you know, preying on, well, this is, you know, this is what you should do. This is what you should buy. This is what you should cook. You know, do this now. You're doing it wrong. That, in my mind, you know, that kind of, you know, quote unquote, service journalism, surely we don't expect that to save the world. If we do, we're really, really in deep doo-doo. Well, we're in deep doo-doo. Yeah, I think the three of us agree we are in deep doo-doo. Yeah, with all the doo-doo. Yeah, yeah. Big question. Um, No, you know, I don't take it as a cop-out. Look, you've convinced me. Um, (laughs) Good. Good. Basically, and I think, but I think that we had to talk it out. You know, and I I think people don't talk it out a lot in terms of institutional responsibility. And I think that you know, I get this question all the time: Are we just screwed? Yes. Next question. You know, <laughs> <laughs> right? Exactly. Exactly. Let's move on. Let's move yeah. on. And I think that the next move is they're screwed and they're screwed, and that's the situation that we're in. And let's deal with it. And it's not a happy one. Yeah. Lord knows. But that's honest. Right. And it's uh, yeah. and it's uh, if you believe knowledge is power, then that's a pretty damn good starting point. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, this was awesome. This was a real pleasure to have you on the show. And and thank you for, you know, playing ball with us. Um, It's a hard conversation to have. Well, it was a pleasure to meet you both. Um, And uh, yeah, onward. 
Thanks so much again to Elizabeth Colbert for that conversation. And thanks also to Sophie Borstein. After my son and I left the library, checked out some books, we went outside, I found a park bench, and I sat down and I tried to explain, <laughs> tried to explain climate change to him. And I said, this is a big problem and it's hurting nature and it's gonna hurt a lot of people too. And it's so big that I'm probably gonna be dealing with it for the rest of my life and you're probably gonna be dealing with it for the rest of your life. I tried to explain how important energy and electricity is to how we live, but that, um, but that there's a trade-off and it's polluting and hurting the planet. He said, this is like the opposite of one plus one. I, I said, you mean it's, it's the opposite of simple, it's complicated? And he said, yeah. <laughs> so we walked from the library down to this little creek there's uh, some water in the creek. It's real clear. You can see fish, you can see turtles. Sat there and looked at the fish and turtles. And he said, are humans the worst animal on the planet? And I said, yes, but humans are also the best animal on the planet, at least sometimes. I said, both things can be true. Kind of like the opposite of one plus one. It's complicated. Thanks so much to Brandon Burke for producing this episode. I'm Michael Osborne. Again, if you want to support the show, go to patreon.com slash genanthro. Thank you for listening. See you next time.